Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's up? How you doing? How's your week been? It's so busy. Like, I just find everything accelerates in June to being way too much. And, you know, you're like running and running and running and running and running until July. And then hopefully things start to give in July. And you're like, whew, we got here. And then I'm like, but then my kids are out of school. So it's like even worse. <laughs> so I'm I'm okay. But like, I'm buried in end of the year concerts and tests and stuff and it sucks <laughs> how are you mm. hopefully it's a little bit fun at least some of the concerts maybe mm, no 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 <laughs> well I'm sorry to hear that I'm <laughs> doing okay <laughs> I'm doing all right uh, I had a good pretty fun week uh, so I'm happy about that it's good. Amazing. Uh, I've also been paying attention to a little bit of the Toronto mayoral election. And I mean, gosh, I can't help but be entertained by some of it. Uh, like, I just came across this hilarious, hilarious uh, campaign strategy by the former police chief. Oh, yes. Mark Saunders. That's the one. He's created like a website that's just stopchow.ca. And I guess like his solution to stopping Olivia Chow uh, is himself. Uh, <laughs> for, well, I mean, he's a candidate. <laughs> that makes sense. For, for no real good reason. Uh, so like his website is, is very, very hilarious. It's just like... Uh, uh, a, a website against Olivia Chow, but for no real reason. It's just, it's just stopchow.ca and a bunch of um, like frequently asked questions. In fact, I'm going to read you one because I just think it's so funny. Okay, I love it. So like when you go to the website stopchow.ca, it's like Saunders is how you stop chow, <laughs> is what it says. And then there's like a, a frequently asked questions. Okay. Question number one, I donated to Anna Bailau. What do I do? <laughs> what the fuck? Answer, that's okay. You can still vote Saunders to stop Olivia Chow. <laughs> that rules. Question number two, I like Brad Bradford. What do I do? <laughs> Seek help. Answer, you, yeah, well, that would be our, our response is certainly seek help. <laughs> um, but answer is you can still like Brad and vote for Saunders to stop Olivia Chow. And it just, it goes on like that. It's like, what in the world? Okay, buddy. Does he answer the question, what if I want to vote for Olivia Chow? That question isn't there. Perhaps that's something that you could submit ah. to the website to look into. That seems like a bit of a failure. I also think it's hilarious that this is under a frequently asked question section <laughs> of the website. <laughs> as though these are the questions that Mark Saunders is frequently being asked instead of, you know, like the, what happened when you started targeting people in the queer community when you did that raid on that park or why didn't you take seriously uh, the uh, serial killer in in the Church Street Village? Or why were you uh, among the worst chiefs that the city has ever seen? <laughs> why? All those um, things. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, those would be my frequently asked questions, but I don't know. 
Well, you know what? The, 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 the election is coming up soon. For everybody that doesn't live in Toronto and doesn't care about this, um, you know, to- good for you. You, sh- you shouldn't. <laughs> There's no reason to care about this. But it is an interesting election because uh, the front runner is Olivia Chow, which is why um, the Saunders campaign has purchased StopChow.ca. And she would represent a pretty significant break from the status quo in that city. And so I want to ask you, Sandy, your prediction for what's going to happen. But before I do that, I just want to say that it's been a long time since there was someone who was even ostensibly progressive in the mayor's seat in Toronto. It would have been David Miller a long time ago. And so if Chow wins, um, I mean, it's 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 a big deal uh, ish. Ish, <laughs> it's kind of a big deal, and uh, and so yeah, Sandy, what do you think is going to happen? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, oh. I mean, it's it's. Look, I have. Hmm. Uh, I believe that the 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 powers that be probably are going to do their darndest to make uh, Anna Bylaw uh, the the person who wins. Uh, I I think that the people who are kind of more elite in the city are are not interested necessarily in Chow. That being said, she has um, the most um, name recognition likely, uh, and it looks like she's doing well. But that was also the case uh, in an election earlier in the twenty teens. Was it twenty twelve? I believe it was. I don't know. Uh, and then. She, and then she ended up losing. So who knows? Um, but it's also like there's so many people in the race, too. I can say for sure that I don't think Brad Bradford, um, who, you know, people had been considering a front runner from the beginning. And I don't know fucking why. I don't think that uh, his campaign is going to come back. This guy who, like, starts his career uh, kind of being this, like, um, bike riding lefty lefty um, urban planner type of guy. And now that he's running is be- you know, become so close to John Tory and has decided to turn into a, a, a right wing. Like, who are you, Brad Bradford? <laughs> He's just um, trying to, he, he believes it seems like the best way to win is to try to pretend to be a Ford or uh, a Tory type character, which is all very weird. It's like, I, I don't know who you are. Um, and you know, he's polling at, at the same level as someone like Chloe Brown, um, who is someone who is like running a campaign, uh, from the ground, who's a black woman who has like, you know, a, a real, um, average lived experience in the city, which, you know, I don't know that many of the other candidates who are considered front runners can say, and she, she had a great showing last, uh, election, um, which was just mere months ago. And it would be cool to see her do um, really well this time around as well. But I, I, it does, to me, if I was to guess, it would be between Chow and Bailao. Yeah, I think that that's pretty much emerging as being what's happening. I've, I've heard rumors that Brad Bradford's like going to drop out and endorse Bailao and try and get a seat on the executive with her because, of course, he's a city, city councilor. He's going to endorse Bailao? <laughs> I mean, that's a rumor. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Maybe I made that up. Maybe maybe that came to me in a, in a dream. But um, it just doesn't make any sense, given the rest of his campaign. But nothing about him makes any sense. So, no. OK, cool. No, I think that Chow might have it. I you know, if I was going to put money on anybody, I would put it on her. And um, then it's going to be like, OK, so then what does that look like with uh, an NDP 
for former politician. I mean, it's been a couple of years since she's been elected. And as you said, she did run in an election and I believe she came in third uh, behind a Ford and a Tory. And, um, you know, she totally might win. And here's hoping that she doesn't do what uh, Andrew Horvath does in uh, Hamilton now as the mayor of Hamilton, voting against, uh, you know, liberal wages. And <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Eddie P. Amazing. But uh, but we'll see. We'll see. And good luck to Toronto. Of course, people should know that there's no um, ranked ballot or there's no uh, transferable vote or anything like that. It is literally you pick one of these 102 people and one dog and that's your vote. So that also is going to create a really weird dynamic because there are so many. I mean, in the top 10, there are, are well, everyone in the top 10 is conceivably a candidate, a viable candidate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there. Uh, it's weird. Super yeah. weird. So there we go. There's that. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's Toronto. So for anybody who doesn't care, I mean, I get it. But also, I mean, what is democracy these days? It's certainly not geolocated. So whatever. True. <laughs> True. Toronto is still the most powerful city in Canada. Sorry, Calgary. I know you're trying really hard to change that. But um, it is interesting. And it is also um, happening at a time where there's not much else happening other than I guess there's some federal by-elections happening. But who cares about those? And um, we'll soon be drifting off into the summer, not caring about politics uh, at all. Right. Uh, I mean, how is that possible? But you know what? (laughs) Beyond that, I am sure that we have some people to thank this week. What do you think? Yes, we do have some people to thank. So thank you, everybody who shared last week's episode. I know it was um, badly anticipated or hotly anticipated because we had taken some time off. And so thank you so much for your kind words upon our return. And of course, thank you for your patience uh, while we took some time off. But this week, thank you so much to everyone who changed their donation or donated to the podcast for the first time, specifically Tavis, Kayo, Mason, Josh, and Dave, who's an old friend. So hey, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So, um, look, I listened to the daily news this week, as I always do. And uh, thanks for doing it, as as always. There was um, a story that you mentioned that I think we should mention here, uh, just as a, a note to, to listeners. And that was your coverage on um, the changing permissions that journalists are being given slash not being given anymore uh, in Ukraine. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things uh, are getting more difficult there for journalists. Ukraine has been revoking some press c- credentials. I mean, compared to the beginning of the war to now they're 400 and what, 474 days or something into the war, into the invasion. Uh, so it's not too surprising that the orientation of the government would change towards uh, wide open press passes. But the Globe and Mail reported last week that one of their journalists, a photojournalist who actually was nominated for a National Newspaper Award this past year, has had his credentials revoked and he has to submit to um, a lie detector test and all of these uh, like grilling from Ukrainian officials to see if he aligns with uh, the national perspective, I guess, of Ukraine on, on the invasion. And the reason why this individual has been targeted is, is the same as a lot of other individuals who have been targeted, which is that he's from the Donbass and he has connections to that part of Ukraine. 
though he's been reporting since 2014, um, on, on uh, very critically of Russia. This is not someone that you could accuse as being uh, uh, pro-Russia or even sympathetic, really, to Russia. And so that's an interesting change in how um, how this is going, I think, for Ukraine. It's, as I say, not surprising. But um, it's also uh, not surprising from the perspective of the fact that they can do this. I mean, they can make these kinds of calls because that's what you do when – you're in the middle of a war, but we don't get coverage about this kind of politic. We really, we just like get like, this has happened or this has happened or this um, bombing has happened in this place or whatever. Uh, and then random notes about Justin Trudeau appeared in Kiev yeah. last week. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. So, I mean, with that news, I also think that it's important to read that news in conjunction with the news that um, uh, Trudeau uh, is um, allocating an additional $500 million uh, to support mm-hmm. Ukraine. And it's just like, what is going on? Uh, you know, war is always bad. <laughs> so um, I expect that none of this is going to get any better and it's just going to get worse um, if, uh, you know, we keep going along this this train. So, um yeah, I just thought it was important to to raise that for our listeners. And another thing that I just remembered as you were talking about um, uh, that story um, that I want to mention is, did you see this this news um, by the Globe and Mail that they've created a database of FOI requests? Yes, yes. SecretCanada.com. Yeah, I think that this is really interesting and really, really great. I, for anyone who's ever tried to file a freedom of information request out there, you probably know that in Canada, it sucks. Like it's it's not only hard, there's often a lot of denials. And if you do get a response, um, sometimes you'll get like the most uselessly redacted thing. And there's just this expectation that you just go and have all of the resources to make all of the appeals uh, to get the information that you want. And so like, I'm really heartened to see the Globe and Mail, um, one, creating a database of existing FOI requests and that people can take a look at, but also uh, attempting to do some advocacy around this and just, you know, calling our governments out for being so freaking secretive and non-transparent. Mm-hmm. Can I be critical of it? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, okay. So I agree with everything you said. This is a really important project and kudos to the Globe Mail and the team behind this. It's It really is good. Now, what people might not realize is that a federal FOI requests were already public. You actually could already go through formerly released FOI documents on the government's website. Um, what this database does is it puts everything together and, you know, other levels of government as well. So you don't have to kind of go through all of the different websites to see what's available and what isn't. So that's positive. But I think that when we're looking at something like this, and this is going to be completely lost on the folks of the Globe and Mail, because they truly believe that if you put pressure on the government to be more transparent, they will be more transparent and it will de facto be better for democracy. As if (laughs) that's all it takes. Not sorry, maybe not as if that's all it takes, but as if it only takes uh, us paying attention to their secrets to make democracy better. And, you know, as I say, a lot of this stuff was already public. And and in some cases, you, like journalists would get redacted documents that had already been released. I mean, that's a common thing that happens with FOI requests. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm very concerned about is the Global Mail focusing on their advocacy and their work. And this becomes more of a, 
brand building exercise for the Globe and Mail than actually changing anything about the culture of freedom of information in uh, Ottawa. Now, that's not the Globe and Mail's fault because it's not their job to change that kind of culture. Of course, their job is to hold people to account and give us the kind of information that uh, that they're doing here. But, you know, if it turns into like um, the big thing that they did on sexual assault where the Globe and Mail declared victory and this is so awesome and look at all of these cases that we've managed to reopen. It's like, you know, fast forward now, however many years that was, eight or something. And it's like, nothing's changed. <laughs> so um, I, I do hope that people take a look at this website, secretcanada.com. It's totally impressive and interesting. But to keep our eyes on the prize, which is that even if our government had released all of these things on their own, and even if access to information was not as shit as it is, we would still have massive problems in this country because it isn't just that they don't respect freedom of information laws that make them so bad. Because again, these laws are actually really recent and parts of government functioned better <laughs> 40 years ago because of neoliberalism. So anyway, that's my little bit of criticism, but it is a really great project. And so, um, yeah, people should definitely noodle around with it because it's totally cool. Well, look, your criticism is kind of related to the main topic for tonight. So why don't we just get into that? Like, what would it take? Yeah. What would it take to actually see some change in the way that that uh, like the governments operate or anything else for that matter? It takes a movement. It takes a movement. And what the Globe and Mail has done isn't a movement. Nora, you had this excellent um series of tweets this week that you wrote that I thought um, was like would be such a great uh, starting point for a conversation on this, um, on what a movement is and what people think a movement is um, these days, I suppose. Like, I don't know. It just it, I thought that your commentary, your analysis was really great. And so um, Secret Canada movement, no movement. Well, <laughs> I think I think people can guess what you would say about that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's not a movement at all. Um, it's the work of one newspaper, which is potentially informing or could be informed by movements. This is, this is, I think, one of the things that that confuses people a lot and not necessarily left wing people. I think that anybody who's active in social movement building understands this. But for the vast majority of people who are not active in some sort of left wing organizing, it can be really confusing to look at the world and say, I don't get it. Like these policies are unpopular. People are suffering. It'd be so easy for the liberals to just do X or Y and they don't do that. And it doesn't make any sense. And so you look at the whole system and making absolutely no sense. And it's like, I don't know how to plug into this world and I don't know how to make sense of this world, which is like doubly uh, disenfranchising and confusing. It makes you want to totally check out because it sucks, right? So I think that the vast majority of Canadians are in that position where they understand the politics, they understand the issues, the issues uh, impact them in very important ways, but they don't necessarily have the understanding of, okay, so what does it take to change political consciousness or what, how does it actually uh, work for, for for average people to force governments to do certain things. And the Globe and Mail might want you to think that they can do it on their own through um, really excellent investigative journalism, but there's always a limit to that. And that limit is really obvious, which is just that, you know, you get published and it's like, the end, no one cares, because there's nothing grabbing onto these issues to make them real for average people. And it's so funny because we actually talk, like basically talked about this last week as well, but in, in a different kind of uh, sense, 
social movements are so broken today that it is very hard for people to see what they are and what they should be and then their interaction with government. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't know that um all social movements are broken. I think that there are um, some social movements that many of uh, those of the people who are listening to this podcast right now would disagree agree with <laughs> that are doing really, really great um, right wing social movements, fascist social mm. movements um, are are having a really great time right now. Um, but I also think that something has happened in the last uh, 10 to 15 years that has like really warped um, what we think of as as a social movement because I think I think Nora that people would say that something like me too was a social movement and I mean I have some critiques about that like would you would you describe that as a social movement no no but I would say that it was close really close to a social movement it could have been one <laughs> and it could it have, been, have one. been one. That's right. Okay. Uh, yes. Let's hear it. Explain why. Well, so it had a lot of parts that are necessary for a social movement to be successful. It had widespread appeal. It had widespread support, tons of visibility, and it had multiple ways for average people to be involved in the movement. And so that could have been um, organizing within your workplace or denouncing something or uh, talking about your own experiences with sexual assault or whatever. And those are all parts of a social movement. But what Me Too specifically was missing was some sort of vehicle to turn that sentiment and that excitement and the visibility into something political. And so what we were left with was appealing individual appeals or maybe group appeals to power to say, you know, sexual assault is wrong. You uh, are a government that seems to think that sexual assault is wrong. So let's let's push you to do certain things. But there were no ability. There was no ability for people to to, to formally get involved. You didn't become a member of anything. You didn't uh, if you were to, to, to call a rally or something, there was nothing to continue that work after a specific mobilization had happened. There was no glue keeping things together. There was nothing keeping track of what was happening so that we could see movement and we can gauge success and we can identify um, how things had changed from moment to moment. And so, you know, it could have happened, but we were not organized uh, enough or at all uh, to be able to translate Me Too into uh, into a proper social movement. Now, that's not to say that it didn't have different impacts, and it certainly raised consciousness, and it certainly mobilized a lot of people in different ways. But we can look back now and say, okay, but once that bulge of activity disappeared, what was left in its wake? And had it been a proper social movement, there actually would have been infrastructure that would have been left. I mean, the infrastructure could have been loose or it could have been um, well organized or whatever, but there was literally nothing. There's nothing. And and worse than nothing, uh, you had the liberals who have who have been very, very good for 100 years and more in this country of co-opting uh, progressive sounding concepts and language and ideas. And they were the primary benefactors of 
uh, of a movement like Me Too because they were able to do the smallest amounts of work and say, look, we are feminists. We're taking this seriously. And they didn't have the organized opposition from that infrastructure, which was missing, to be able to say, whoa, 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 actually, like the emperor is freaking naked right now, folks. They, they benefited massively without having by not having those voices. Yeah, one of the things that I think um, there, too, that was missing, I mean, in the, in what you're describing is is essentially like the lack of organizing, a way to shepherd people uh, into what happens post-mobilizing. And I, I remember, you know, when we had just started up um, Black Lives Matter Toronto in the city of Toronto, it was a critique that we got a lot was like, um, you guys aren't organizing, you're just mobilizing. From, and that's like a critique that probably is dead today. Like it's definitely a 20, 2013, 2014 uh, critique that I, I, you know, I don't know if people are making those same sorts of critiques today, but it was like, our response to that was like, and yes, uh, correct. We are not organizing. We are just mobilizing because there are so many great groups who've been organizing uh, for decades. And what we're trying to do is shepherd people uh, into knowing what those groups are doing and making sure that uh, people who feel connected by us and feel excited by us, by our mobilizing, have a place to go. And so making sure that those other groups are involved in our organizing and making sure that people get directly connected so that they can, um, you know, if they are getting involved in BLM, they also know about um, whether it's uh, no one is illegal or the groups who were at the time um, organizing for uh, justice for migrant workers, or if it was uh, people who were organizing uh, to, to get cops out of schools, that we could connect those people and make sure that people knew about the organizing that was happening. And we were mobilizing for, um, for, those, uh, for those causes, like in, in addition to the overall cause of, you know, Black Lives Matter and um, focusing on anti-Black racism, and in particular, the urgent issue of uh, anti black uh, police brutality, but also just making sure that people were tied into these other groups. And I think that that's, this is like, was a huge misstep for me to altogether. Yes. Well, b- partly because me too, wasn't anybody, <laughs> right? Like black lives matter, especially in the earliest days, we literally can point to individuals and name them as being who, who helped coalesce things. And then in, in city by city in Canada, who would, who was doing chapter-based work or who was doing local community organizing. I mean, Me Too didn't really have the same thing. And part, part of that was because I think I was such an online phenomenon that there really wasn't a way, I think, in a lot of people's minds to translate that into real life. It was like, you can call a rally. That's fine and that's easy. But how do you translate something like uh, Me Too, which is denouncing, let's say, power, people in powerful positions uh, for, for being violent. Uh, why do you operationalize that into on, on the ground movement? I mean, you could, but I think that the connection was a little bit more hazy. And and there's there's a lot of other examples of this. I mean, you know, like the anti-war movement, I, I think we, there's a lot of good people, a very few groups <laughs> doing really good anti-war work right now. But like it's not existent at all. And the impact of it not being existent is exactly what we're seeing in how Canada is interacting with Ukraine. When you look back at Afghanistan and at at Iraq and um, how the anti-war movement helped to bring sense 
to what was going on. Like, keep in mind, right, Iraq was, we were fighting an, a horrible tyrant who was murdering his own people and he needed to be deposed. In Afghanistan, we were fighting to liberate girls from the Taliban and it was a noble and just fight. And in both of those situations, thanks to the work of the anti-war movement, which was the sum of the parts of many different kinds of peace and anti-war groups that were located all over Canada that did some kinds of specific work like anti-nuclear war, doing some kinds of more general work like just anti-war in this rural community of, of whatever, this part of Nova Scotia. And they were able to plug into anti-war organizing that was very specific and that absolutely changed how government talked about the war and not just talked about the war, but I mean, journalists will erase this now and they'll say that uh, the biggest decision that Jean Chrétien ever made as the prime minister was to not go uh, to war with the United States. I mean, alongside the United States, not with the United States. Um, but uh, that was not. A, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, that's coming. No, it's not Imagine coming. That. <laughs> oh, my God. But that's that wasn't Chrétien. That was literally the, the work of the movement to do that. Now, we can look at another movement today and climate justice, I think, is is a, is is it's a social movement. I think it's it's disjointed and it doesn't really under, like know where exactly to press put its power. But it's certainly more developed and advanced than a lot of other um, movements in Canada. And thanks to the climate justice movement, I mean, we are hearing conversations with these wildfires like, oh, it's probably related to climate change, right? There's a lot more common knowledge that's produced as a result of having a, a, a movement, a social movement around it. Um, but anti-war, we can see exactly what happens in absence of it, which is that no one knows what to think about this thing other than, well, Russia's bad. We must stand by Ukraine and flood this completely unstable country with weapons. <laughs> like, hmm, that should be that should go well, right? Um, and, and, and so we lose so, so, so much when we don't have those kinds of uh, that kind of organizing that's happening around an issue around some some sort of you know massive massive issue. I mean, a war is not just an issue; it's many different issues, and it's um and it's a real shame. It's a real shame, and it completely completely changes what we envision to be possible in our in our left wing organizing. Mm -hmm. In your in your thread, you talk about how there's a number of things that you know people might describe as uh, being good things for people to do, like um, a network of help and aid or um, individuals who are taking it upon themselves to, to, to be the voice of like a, a complicated issue and trying to get people to think about it differently. And you name specifically that these things are not uh, social movements. And I think that that's really important because I think there's something about... Um, the way that the internet has has impacted our organizing that that makes it it makes it seem as though things are happening that that aren't like pre-internet. Like, yes, you would have seen some individuals, you know, um, talking about a particular issue. But generally, they get to the point of talking about that issue because they're either some sort of expert, like academically or something like that, or they are connected to some sort of movement, some sort of um groups of people who have said, like, this is the person who you speak to about this. This is why it makes sense. You can kind of skip that in the uh, internet age and just become the person mm -hmm. uh, to talk about something uh, through so the way that you interact online. And it, it creates this sort of proxy for something that we believe is the same as something that's happened in the past. Um, but it's not. And, and similarly with like networks of aid and help, it's, it, 
at the worst of times, it replicates like the idea of, 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 um, uh, charity. Um, but you know, I think that because of the way that we show each other how we're involved in these things, which uh, might be very, very necessary in our communities, perhaps we think that that's enough if it's connected to a social issue. Uh, we think that that's enough in terms of um, movement building. Uh, but at times, what that can do is actually stagnate uh, social movement building as we become really, really focused on the networks of aid that we are trying to provide, the uh, type of uh, service provision um, that we're trying to essentially provide in our communities. And if we don't then connect that to, I don't know, uh, connecting to other groups who are trying to create the same sort of services or uh, connect that to some sort of advocacy to make it such that the service is no longer needed, um, then we're not really movement building. It's, it's like ca calling a food bank um, which which might be really good and really necessary in a community, but uh, calling that in and of itself a movement against poverty. And it's it's not. It should be part of the movement against poverty, probably, <laughs> but it's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're and we're so confused by this, I think, too, because, um, well, first of all, there's there's an allergy to talking critically about things. In a in a way that is to not say like fuck food banks right which is like obviously not what we're saying, but I do think that people get their backs up when you are critical about these kinds of things, and um and then people do good work and you don't want to necessarily say well your good work isn't a movement because that's I mean it's not but that's that isn't the point of the conversation and I and I know we're going to move into talking about okay so then what is movement building but you know while you were talking I was thinking of this group that I helped to co-found. And what we do, it's called the Nikangana Foundation, and we provide very small amounts of money to people who are uh, who need like short term fast money to pay for something that's essential. And a lot of people will pay for things like rent or utilities or whatever. And while I was going through the news last week, I saw that in Saskatchewan alone, something like $4.6 million is owed by people who are on Saskatchewan income support just for things like utilities. And I was thinking of how much money like our foundation makes and how futile it really is up against the fact that you have $4.6 million that's outstanding to utilities companies. And then you're like, well, who are utilities companies? And it's like, oftentimes that's the state, actually. Even, you know, even in, in, in Saskatchewan, that's that includes cell phone. That's the state. So it's like, so how, the, how can people be again? And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a web here. And so, you know, even though this, this foundation is, is, is great and people should donate money to it because we support a lot of really important initiatives and people that need the money. There's nothing that's actually challenging uh, the power in the work that we are doing because it's very, very small. So then the movement becomes the sum total of people who are operating in the same direction and fighting against the same uh, structural barriers or, they, or, or, or moving with the same currents and helping the same kinds of people and being involved with the same kinds of people and being led by the same kinds of people. That's where you start to actually have movements coalesce. And so, you know, it's easy to talk about this stuff in a very um, 10,000 feet above the earth kind of way. But when you get down to the ground on this stuff, it's also actually very easy to talk about what are the elements that we need then to 
to build a movement? What is movement building? And how do we avoid pitfalls like the internet telling us that it's one thing or um, feeling like we're never good enough because we're not doing anything significant? Or I think what the vast majority of people feel, feel right now is like, I don't even know where to start. I'm not going to be the one to start these things. I don't even know what to do. And so I think about that a lot. I think a lot about the sum total of an of a of a movement and then the parts that go into building that movement and how critically important it is for those parts to be um, grassroots and accessible and easy for average people to plug into because it is only through those doors of entry that you will actually get yourself into a broader social movement. But then, of course, there's a lot of work that the leadership has to figure out too. And that's where you get um, really exciting and interesting debates, but sometimes things get stymied as well. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. What are the elements that people need in order to like successfully build a movement? I think um, first and foremost, the most important, the primary, the thing that you should always be thinking of when you're trying to evaluate uh, whether something is uh, movement building or not, or what the point is, is power. Everything is about power. If your action is not building power, then it cannot be a social movement. A movement is a is the building of power against uh, the status quo. That is um, how it works, and that might seem a little theoretical and pie in the sky, but it's it's really not. It's just you have to understand that for something to shift, for something to change. Uh, in the way that the world currently works, there has to be some force moving against its inertia. It's just, it's power. And for an average person, if you're someone who is uh, in a minority, um, let's think about race, you know, if you are black in Canada, then you are going to be in a minority of people. And necessarily don't have just like mass power amongst um, your population to be able to force a shift in the way that the that the um, that the government or the powers that be work and so you have some options available to you you can if um, you know the issues are you you're not able to access services because of anti-black racism you can um, provide those services uh, for your community yourself. Absolutely. And that isn't going to build a movement against how things are currently operating, but it can fulfill some sort of need. But if there's a way in which you can start to mobilize people within your community and outside your community to care about the way that your community, uh, if we're talking about race here and black people, that black people are being impacted in Canada, then you can build power against the way that the state is either ignoring or um, harming uh, your community. And that is a critical piece of what is uh, among the elements of social movement building. Yeah. And then there's like some just basic technical parts of it as well, which is like, well, we could look at other movements that have been very successful in in coalescing the work that has been going on. And one of the examples that I like to talk a lot about, and I've written about it before as well, is the migrant justice movement. 
Migrant justice organizations have been around since there's been migrants in Canada, and a lot of the organizations have always worked together, and some haven't. They're often regionally located or regionally based. Some are connected to unions, some are not. Some are connected to different language groups, or some are directed connected to different ethnic groups. And the sum of all of these groups coming together under one umbrella organization in Canada has just so amazingly increased the, the, the ability that migrant justice organizing has had to influence what happens in power, in the halls of power, but also in journalism. And so if you look at the pandemic, during the pandemics, uh, like the worst uh, parts of the first year, the worst part of the first year for migrant workers, there was a consistent message that was coming out through media. And that was because that migrant justice organizers were on the same page. And it didn't matter who was being quoted. Oftentimes, there'd be maybe two or three advocates in every article. And that was across the board from the, the Globe and Mail to the CBC to whatever. And they were always saying similar or the same things. They were always constantly reminding uh, audience members or listeners or whatever about, you know, pathways to permanent residency or whatever. And it, and it made it such that journalists could easily translate what movement was saying to power, to to politicians or to the owners of these uh, farms or whatever. And if you look at the coverage, as I did, I mean, I, I know about this because I, you know, it's in my book. Um, the coverage related to migrant justice was so much more, more coherent and had so many more specific demands that then you actually saw politicians responding to in a, in a, in a much clearer way than any other movement during 2020 or 2021. I think probably by far and away, like, and then think of like the, you know, feminist issues. I mean, it was just scattergun. You can talk about anything. It was like, oh my gosh, like we don't even know what our, our demands are because, you know, there's so many demands, but they, they had a central organizing structure that allowed the groups to be involved or not involved, uh, allowed for different kinds of interactions and, and coordination. And, and the impact was very clear. So when we're, when we're thinking about building movements, if you're someone who's in an organization uh, let's say that you're a member or maybe you're even in leadership. Are you making networks happen? Are you reaching out to other groups? Are you meeting with other groups? Are you having um, roundtables within your communities with people that are doing similar or maybe a little bit different work to start the connection building between everybody and, and making the identification happen between the issues? Like that's really the glue that then starts to hold a social movement together, uh, regardless of what gets thrown in its way. And really importantly, those networks, they don't need to agree on everything. They don't need to be all a part of the same organization. They don't all need to have like the same endorsement for uh, big P politics or anything like that. But they do need to have like a general understanding of the, the power in which they are trying to shift. I mean, one of the, the great lessons of being involved in the student movement in the um, mid I always get this wrong. Aughts, right? <laughs> in the mid, <laughs> mid aughts. In the mid aughts was um, having like this this uh, confluence of different uh, organizations who were involved in what was going on, and some who were far more radical than others, and some who were more willing to like 
engage with government and some who are really like, no, fuck that. Uh, But either way, no matter where you fell, we were able to come together and agree on some basic, basic things. And that was really important towards uh, building um, a movement um, to, to, to combat the power that was impacting students at the time. And I think that, you know, there's too much, there's too much that some people, I guess, are think of as necessary or prescriptive uh, towards starting a movement, like starting an organization that is non-hierarchical and open and anyone can come to, 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 to the meetings and stuff like that. That's way too prescriptive. Like do the stuff that works for you. Like if you are a super radical organization, who's going to be doing a lot of um, direct action, maybe it doesn't work to have like a super open organization, but if you are one that is trying to uh, educate as many people as possible as part of your goal, maybe you do want a really open organization. What's really critical is that those two organizations can somehow come together and have some sort of conversation or can communicate in some way if they are working towards the same issue, if they're working on the same issue and working towards similar goals. Those pieces are really, really critical to movement building. Totally. And that's, as I say, that, that is the glue that holds it together. It's those relationships and those networks. And you don't have to be friends with people. You don't have to be best friends. You don't even have to like anybody in the groups oh, that you're working absolutely with. Absolutely not. But if you're doing any kind of left-wing organizing and you have not had a coalition meeting in the last six months for whatever reason, whether it's related to COVID or whether it's related to everyone being burnt out or anything, organize something, call something. It's really, really not hard. And like, that's the only way that the anti-war movement is going to come back to life is, is, is actually that really slow, regional, local, city, town, rural, community-based um, group by group to actually create something that could be a national or provincial in scope. That's really, really important. And through the process of doing that, then you do identify those experts. You identify the people that have the best command of what's happening, the best um, skills to be able to translate that to journalists or to translate that to politicians or the people who have the stomach to even do that. And then you've got the people who don't have the stomach to do that. And they're much more uh, uh, comfortable doing radical actions or whatever. This stuff isn't difficult if you go brick by brick. But if you look at this wall and you're like, how do I get to the top of that wall? It feels like it's impassable. It's not impassable, but we have been battered by 40 years of neoliberalism. And then, and that has absolutely destroyed our, even our, our, our natural tendencies to want to work with other groups or to want to work across difference or to want to work across issues, or even in some cases to work with people doing the same work as you. So um, whether that is you you found a, a young workers council in your community, whether uh, that is you have you you re kick reignite. Uh, a coalition that you had years ago to talk about racism in general and invite any group doing racism work, anti-racism work at all to join. Like, it doesn't matter. But what does matter is that we have no time to waste. And these are the pieces that then will form themselves into a, into a broader movement. That's, that's how it works. And 
as I say, there's some really good examples out there of, of groups that have been doing the work and that you could just copy. But also, Sandy, as you said, it's not prescriptive. And so it's about experimenting and just getting people together in the same room. That is, I think, the most important thing, because when you're together in the same room, what happens? You're energized. You're excited. You actually get to see people. It's so important because that is actually what will sustain you while you're doing this work. And you know what? You saying that, I mean, that is the secret sauce of of Trump. Like that is the secret sauce of the right. It's folks have undoubtedly noted noticed that the right has been holding these rallies over um, over you know attending debates or over um, some other strategies that they could be using they are prioritizing these rallies and they also prioritize um, going to events where people are and bringing a bunch of people and inviting a lot of other people to come with them there's a reason for that and you know for anyone who's done any sort of um, rally organizing before, or even like a large uh, convention organizing or huge meeting organizing, you know that when you get a bunch of people in a room together, you can really, really have this sort of energy where you can believe that anything is possible. You can get people to start working on an issue that f- does feel like you're up against a wall, like you say, and all of a sudden things become more possible because you see other people who believe in what you do around you and are willing to put a whole bunch of energy and excitement behind that. It is the sauce of how fascism makes a roaring return to popularity uh, in in the times that we're living in now. It's, it's impossible without having those in-person spaces where people can feel like, oh, there's something here. Um, And the right is doing that really, really well. All the time. They're doing it everywhere. (laughs) Like everywhere and all the time, wherever they can. 